So in 2 Peter, we have been talking about, because Peter has been talking about the return of Christ. There are false teachers that were denying Christ's return. Peter has made it clear that Christ is returning, and we need to be watching for this. And even though it seems like there's been a a delay, we've seen uh, Peter stress to us that it's from our perspective that it may seem that way, but God has his reasons. And that for God, a thousand years is as a day, and a day is as a thousand years. We've seen that. We've seen the reason also for his, uh, with his delay is to give opportunity for more people to be saved. And if Christ had returned 2,000 years ago, where would that have left us? So God has his plan. He's working that out. And he has a heart that goes out to all, inviting, welcoming, commanding all to come to him for salvation. The question I want to ask this morning is, when he does return, how do you want to be found by him? Do you want to be found by him that you have collapsed in a heap, like the false teachers, or those that have followed the false teachers, either with their their doctrine or their lifestyle, going into sin, sensuality, all these different things, following after uh, greed, the pleasures of flesh, all these different things. Do you want to be found collapsed? Or do you want to be found standing firm, stable, and steadfast? I think this has really been a theme of the entire letter of Second Peter, is how are we to be able to be found stable, steadfast, set firm? So I want to give you kind of a main point, I think for this message, but really this could be a summary for the entire letter of Second Peter. And that's this. True knowledge of God applied gives your life stability. So many people leave these unstable lives where they're, they're, they're falling over, they're, they're tipping, their lives are not held together. And, but if we have knowledge of God, and knowledge of God that comes through his word that he has given to us, by which we can know not just what he wants, it's a big part of it, by which we can know him, and we can know uh, his personal love for us. We can know God, what he's like, and we can have a relationship with him. This is able to give your life a stability, a firm stability that will stand firm even when uh, the, the winds come, even when there's all these things that uh, the world, the devil, and everything would use to knock you down. And many have fallen. There are many of those that did not have a, a firm foundation, a real grasp of the gospel message. And it may seem like they've fallen Christ for a while and then things all fall apart. But we're going to see in all of Second Peter, and especially as it comes to a conclusion here, I honestly believe that true knowledge of God applied gives your life stability. This is what you want. This is what God has for you. So let's read this passage together. Second Peter three fourteen through 18. God's Word says, Therefore, beloved... Since you are waiting for these things, talking about the coming of the day of the Lord, the return of Christ, since you're waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, 
Therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away by the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. This is God's Word and God's Word for us this morning. Uh, We're going to walk through this with three main points uh, that I believe unpack this paragraph and also kind of unpack the summary sentence that I've just given you. It won't be in strict chronological order, but they're all from this paragraph. And the first part that I want to point out and, and demonstrate is that true knowledge of God comes from the Scriptures. And this has been a reoccurring theme in this letter. The false teachers are teaching apart from God's word. But Peter has been telling us that uh, truth comes from the word of God. That's why there was this long section, if you remember back in chapter 1, where he, starting verse 16, talked about, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses. And saying, this, we're not making these things up. This is truth. Uh, but then he says, we have this, uh, verse 19, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart, knowing first of all that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And we need to remember that, that when we think about this book and the message in this book, this is not a human concoction. It was written by human beings. It it really was. And they didn't go into some kind of zombie writing when they wrote this out. But God used their intellect, used their minds, and wrote the very words that he wanted to be written down. And when it talked about them being carried along, this is the, a word that is used of the wind pushing a sailboat and uh, directing it where it would go. So God superintended the writing of Scripture, we believe, from, from beginning to end, so that this is God's message that he has for us and that he has for you. And God, knowing the future, made this relevant uh, back then, and it made it relevant today. I think we keep finding week after week how it seems like the ink of Scripture is still fresh that it still deals with the, the challenges and the problems that we have every single day in our world and in our lives. So we need to keep looking to this. Another thing from this passage that I think is really interesting uh, is when we think about what is uh, Scripture and how do, how do we know which writings are Scripture. There's, in verse 15, we see that Peter refers to Paul's letters as Scripture. Did you notice this? It says, again, in that uh, passage, it says, Count the patience of our Lord of salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, Paul the Apostle, remember he wasn't one of the original 12 apostles, but the Lord appeared to him later on, called him as an apostle, and wrote a good amount of the New Testament. And it says, When uh, he wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, so Peter at least knew of uh, a good number of Paul's letters. We don't know if he had uh, been able to read them all at this point, uh, but a good number of them. And he mentions that there's some things in them that are, that are difficult to understand, which the ignorant and unstable 
due to their own destruction. But then notice it says, as they do the other scriptures. So he is putting Paul in the same category as uh, the other scriptures. Now, I think this is uh, kind of interesting to think about uh, as far as how do we know what books belong in the Bible? And we had a message a few weeks ago at a PM service, so if you're wanting more information on this, I encourage you to find that online, the message that uh, I did, and that was a message that was called Who Decided What Books Are in the Bible? And we talked about a few of the criteria that the early church used to recognize. There was no official, there was not a church council, contrary to what a lot of times you'll read on on the internet or in different books, that, oh, this council manipulated what books are in Scripture and there's hidden books that should have been in there. It wasn't like that at all. The early church was able to recognize these mostly because they knew the apostles that it was coming from. They know, oh, this is coming from Peter. This is legit because we know Peter's legit. Oh, it's coming from Paul. We know that, that Paul is legit. And later on when somebody would make up a book and say this comes from uh, <coughs> Somebody, you know, Thomas or somebody that, uh, you know, had been long dead, they know, okay, this isn't the real thing. Plus, it, when they look at it and say, this doesn't match up with what we've been taught already and what we've received. So some of their basic tests that they used in the early church was uh, three criteria, was scriptural books, when they checked it, had to be apostolic, orthodox, and Catholic. And those words, you have to think the original meaning. So apostolic, it's from or sourced by an apostle, has an apostle's authority. Orthodox means correct doctrine. If it was deviating from what they had been taught by the apostles, they knew it wasn't legit. And then Catholic in the, the old meaning of it, meaning universal. You know, if it was something that only one or two churches recognized as scripture, that was kind of doubtful. But if, you know, across uh, the land, it's being used by lots of churches and they're using it in worship and recognizing it, then it was a good indication that God was helping the, uh, the sheep to hear his voice. Because ultimately there's a self-authenticating nature of Scripture that it just it rings true. And because it is written by the Holy Spirit, that those that uh, are, are born again by the Holy Spirit, the sheep hear his voice. But I want to quickly do this, kind of another way to think through uh, Scripture being validated is to think through like this. So let me bring this up. We have scriptural books here. We have these, the Old Testament put together, and then we have the New Testament. And if we want to think about uh, how we can know that uh, these are legitimate, you know, one way that we can do this is we can start by thinking through um, it being validated. Now, if you were alive in the Old Testament times, you would already know that uh, the Old Testament writings were, were valid because you would know, okay, this was written by Moses and he was definitely a prophet. He was used by God, did these miracles. That was a mark of authenticity for him. Or the other prophets that uh, God would you know, give a prophecy through. And some prophecy was long-term, but they would also have other short-term prophecies that they would see fulfilled. And they, they would know, okay, this is a legit man of God, God speaking to him. So they would know. But if you were in the New Testament and you really wanted to know this for sure, uh, one just clincher for the Old Testament books is that Jesus recognized them all as, as the Word of God. And you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see this. Uh, Jesus keeps referring to them as Scripture. It is written that God has said in His Word. 
And we see him referring to uh, the law, the, the writings and the prophets, the three main groups of the, the Old Testament. Uh, but one other thing, we kind of come over here and talk about this. One place I think that's kind of interesting too is in uh, the book of Matthew twenty three thirty five. There's a, one thing that Jesus says at one point. He says, uh, "So that you may come, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar." And sometimes people point to that and say, well, this is a kind of an error in Scripture. Because they say, well, Zechariah wasn't the last person that was killed in the Old Testament. But here's the thing. If you have a uh, Hebrew Old Testament, and that's what I have here, it's a Hebrew Old Testament. And if you flipped to the beginning of this, well, we flipped to this. What, what, do you, what book do you think there is in the beginning here? You think Genesis? Ah, oh, you'd be wrong. First of all, this isn't the beginning. Because the Hebrew Bible, this is actually the beginning. It's, it's, it's backwards from our perspective. And so you would have Genesis. And so the first person to have his blood shed, at least as recorded in the Bible, you know, would be Abel, who was killed by Cain. Uh, but then if you flip to the other side, you know, we're used to um, the last book in our Bibles being, of course, Malachi, the Italian prophet. So uh, Malachi. Uh, but that's in ours. Our, we have the same Old Testament books, but they put them in a different order. If you have a Hebrew Bible, at the end it ends with Chronicles. And so if you have the book of Chronicles, the last person to have a blood shed, uh, just as Jesus said, is this Zechariah. And so basically Jesus is saying from, from one side to the other side, from, uh, for us it, it, even it's A to Z uh, by their names, but he's saying from one cover to the other cover, you know, this is the word of God in the Old Testament word of God. Notice he leaves out the Apocrypha that comes after that, and he didn't refer to that as uh, Scripture, but he referred to all of these. So we can know based on Jesus Christ that these books um, genuinely are Scripture. We also know that Jesus told us that he had his apostles that he picked out, and in one place in John fourteen twenty five through 26, he said, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And so Jesus, he gave these apostles. They were ones sent with authority. This is a different level of authority than we're disciples, but we're not apostles. And the Holy Spirit was going to be working in them, and they would produce Scripture. So if we look at uh, the book's that we have in our New Testament, we think, okay, which ones are written by apostles? And you have Matthew, you have John, you have the letters of Peter, the letters of John, and you have Revelation. So, okay, based on this, we can know because of their apostolic authority that these are definitely scripture. And then in the passage that we just read, this is interesting, that we have Peter, one of the apostles, referring to the writings of Paul as scripture. Now, Paul also defended that he is an apostle. Christ appeared to him. Christ commissioned him. Uh, so he had the authority, even if Peter hadn't said this, it would still be true. But also, Peter refers to his scripture. So, you know, okay, the writings of Paul, they are also scripture. So we're just seeing how these things we can know, okay, these are validated uh, by people with authority. If Jesus uh, 
claims to be the Son of God, proves that he is with his miracles and rising from the dead, we should have the same view of the Old Testament as he does. And uh, the apostles that he has given, and they did miracles as well to show that they had this authority. And then same with uh, Paul. Now we have a few others here that we have to think through. And uh, one that we noticed, Luke, was actually not one of the apostles. He was a traveling companion of Paul. Okay, he worked very closely with him. In a sense, it probably had Paul's uh, kind of stamp of approval on Luke's writing. But also, in 1 Timothy 5.18 by Peter, he quotes Luke 10.7, which says, "The, the laborer deserves his wages. And that part's actually not found in the Old Testament. That's something that Jesus said that is recorded in the Gospel of Luke. So you have Paul referring to Luke as Scripture. Luke wrote the book of Luke, and he wrote the book of Acts. So we have that there. We have James. Now, there were two apostles named James, well, of the original 12, but James, who wrote the book of James, wasn't one of those. He was James, the brother of Jesus. He uh, witnessed Jesus rise from the dead. We know that from Scripture. But uh, he wasn't a believer until after uh, Jesus rose from the dead. But he appeared to him, he became a believer. And also, this is interesting. We don't normally think of James as like an apostle. Uh, But there were the 12 apostles, but then there were a few kind of add-ons as well, too. It refers to Barnabas at one point. Uh, But in one place, in Galatians 1.9, Paul says, But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, which seems to include James, the Lord's brother, as an apostle as well. So now you have James with apostolic authority. So we still have a few others here. We have Mark, uh, who was an apostle, but he was a really close companion of Peter. And in many ways, uh, Mark's gospel is, is probably, you could think of it as Peter's gospel written down by Mark. And so it carries authority from him. You have the book of Jude, a uh, small book you know, at the end. He's another brother of Jesus. Uh, now this one, we don't, Christians have recognized this as scripture. We don't have a statement stating that he's an apostle, although I kind of wonder. You know, the same way that James uh, was declared an apostle, uh, we have Jude, but either way, it, it carries um, the authority of Christ and coming through this and the other apostles. And it leaves us with Hebrews. Problem with that is we don't know for sure who wrote the book of Hebrews. And many uh, believe in the early church and many today that it seems like Paul wrote it, but Paul usually you know, signs his letters and writes it in a certain way, and maybe he did. You read it, it really seems like this is Paul's theology, uh, but others have said, well, maybe it's someone else. Maybe it was Barnabas or Apollos or something. Uh, there's a theory that maybe it was written by Luke, uh, but basically he was taking stuff that he had heard Paul teach over and over again in their uh, journeys, especially as they went around to the synagogues, and he, he wrote that down in, in written form. But I think Hebrews is a good reminder to us, too, that you know, being able to trace it being vouched by an apostle or something is important and really helps us. But ultimately, there is a self-authenticating nature in Scripture. If you have read the book of Hebrews, if you spend time in it, you come away with the, the conviction, this is the Word of God. It just rings true the way it preaches about Christ, the way it matches up with everything else. Uh, you will read it and you will say, this definitely is the Word of God because it has that self-authenticating nature. And so we see then uh, just all of our scripture 
uh, being kind of validated. And I just wanted to run that through with you because I thought this is a helpful way to realize this is uh, the, the Word of God. And we don't have anything else as much as sometimes people talk about these extra books of Scripture or things later on. They're all forgeries written 100 years later, things like that. Uh, the b- books that you have in your Bible are the books that are meant to be there, and they have His authority. And so when we gather together, when you study, hopefully every day you're getting into the Word of God. This is your foundation. This is your nourishment that you need to, to grow, to be strong in the Lord. God is speaking to you through the Word of God. And the question is, are you listening? Are you building your foundation on the foundation that, that, he, has, that he has given us there? So, one other thing I want to point out too is in the passage that we were looking at, he mentions, he says, uh, our beloved uh, Paul also wrote to you in accordance with the wisdom given to him, so it's a message from God, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. This should be an encouragement to you. If you've ever been trying to work through the Bible or work through Paul's letters, you're like, this is kind of under, hard to understand. Let it be an encouragement to you that Peter the Apostle recognized that as well. And that, uh, yes, there are some things that are, are, are not easy, that may take work, or things that maybe we don't, any of us, have fully figured out or still have some questions on. But we should realize that uh, it's okay that uh, God's word is... Um, is deep and there are uh, difficult things and there, it mentions false teachers that will take things and twist them and distort them to their own destruction because maybe they don't want to see what's there. Some of the things are difficult to understand not because of the difficulty in the matter but difficulty in accepting it. And so many of the false teachers or people that deny scripture, um, you know, whether it's a teaching about God that they don't like or whether it's a teaching about ethics and how we should live, and, well, I don't want to have to be bound by that. So let's, you know, let's take this and uh, just kind of bend it to however we want it and just kind of do that. We need to take Scripture as it is. So as we think about this, don't give up. As you read Scripture, as you become a student of Scripture, and you learn from it, don't twist Scripture. Learn to handle Scripture and, and learn Scripture. Um, Mark Twain is said to have... Uh, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me, it's the parts that I do understand. We talked about the Bible being clear, attributes of Scripture, and one of the attributes is clarity or perspicuity. I don't think what Peter is saying here is a denial of the clarity of Scripture, okay? Because hard to understand does not mean impossible to understand. Just because something is hard does not mean it's impossible. And also just because something is uh, hard to understand fully doesn't mean it's hard to understand at all. Okay, there are plenty parts of Scripture that it's plain, it's apparent, it is simple. The only hard part might be acknowledging this is true and being willing to, to live like it is. So that's part of it. We need to know Scripture, but then we need to acknowledge it and we need to act accordingly. And so the second point of this message is just to remind us of hopefully what should be an obvious truth, that true knowledge of God must be diligently acted on. If you just 
you know truth, you may know all these facts, but you either decide to live a different way or you disregard it. Uh, this is inconvenient. This would not go according to the way that you want to live your life and follow your heart. Okay, we need to act upon it. We need to put it in practice. So many things in life. We know what we should be doing. We know what would make a a healthier life for ourselves. We know what would get us ahead more. We know what would be wise things to do, and we just don't do it. So when we look at the Word of God and it tells us things that we need to do, we we need to do it. We need to believe what it tells us. We need to act upon what it tells us to do. So there's several passages in the section that we just read that I think really stress this, saying things like, be diligent, take care, but grow. Uh, that it's not just a bunch of knowing, but it's knowing that is put into action. So let me look, have us look at three of these. In verse 14, it says, Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. The same word is found in chapter 1, verse 10 and 15. It can be translated, make every effort, be diligent. You are uh, putting forth sweat. You're putting forth work to do this. We're going to see it's not ultimately our own power. The Holy Spirit is with us. God's grace is with us, enabling to do this. But there is our part. It's not a passive thing. We need to make every effort. And it says to be without spot or blemish. God doesn't save you because you've cleaned up your life perfectly. And he saves you as you are with all of your sin. And he takes the punishment for you on the cross. When he goes to the cross, he gives you credit for his perfect life. But when you are saved, God starts that renovation work in your life, changing you, cleaning you from, from, usually from the inside out. And so we need to be working with that. And as we identify and you see parts in your life that aren't right, we don't just say, well, you know, Jesus died for me and it's okay, so, you know, I'm, I'm a nasty person. That's who I am. And I'm just going to be a nasty person this way. I'm going to be selfish. I'm going to be lusty. I'm going to be greedy. Whatever it is, that's, that's who I am. Okay, that's who you were. Okay, that's the, the rust. That's the defect. That's not the, the new person. That's not your eternal destiny. Your eternal destiny is to be made like Christ, to be made brand new, to be restored. You find those parts in your life that need that restoration You work with God to get rid of those spots, those blemishes. He loves you even with them, but he loves you to help you get rid of them, to become the man or woman that he has called and created you to be. So we need to be about that, asking God to search our hearts, to search our lives, to measure ourselves not by what we think or by what society says, but but scanning ourselves with the the word of God, letting that do its x-ray upon our hearts and our lives to see what needs to be removed and needs to be changed. Verse 17 says, Knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Take care, here can mean to to watch out, to be on guard. We need to be watching. There is false teaching in the world. Okay, There are people that are uh, leading people into false, false ethics saying this is what is right when God's word says that it is wrong. And the other way around too. We need to really be watching out. We need to help those around us watch out. We need to help our kids to watch out. Otherwise, they're just going to absorb everything that culture is telling them and be led away into all this error. And they're going to lose their stability, like it says. You're not going to be able to, to stand firm. 
So it's not just knowing God's truth, but it's acting upon it that is going to help you to live a life that is planted solidly in him, to stay firm, to stay stable. So watch out, be on your guard. And verse 18 says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I'm pointing out some of the passages that are kind of active commands, telling us to, to grow. Now, I know if you have you know, plants at home and you're planting them, you can't just yell at them to grow. And <laughs> you can help them to have the conditions that they need, put them where they're getting the right light and the right water and all this. And that's part of what we need to be doing too. And so one thing, I'm glad that you came to church on Sunday. That's part of what we need to do, to be sitting under the, the Word of God, to be coming together as believers. And hopefully you've had conversations when you came in. You'll have conversations on the way out. Hopefully you know people here that you can be praying for during the week, that you can be helping. All of these different means that God uses to help us to grow. And hopefully you're in the Word of God uh, throughout the week, that this isn't the only time that, that you are fed. Okay, This is an important time that we come together. But in the same way that I hope you don't just eat one big meal on Sunday and then you're you know, starving for the rest of the week, don't starve yourself from the Word of God. I hope that you're in it. I hope you're meditating, you're thinking on it. These things that you're actively doing to help God to cause you to grow. He causes the growth, but he does it through different means. And so we need to be active in those means. So knowledge without action is not sufficient. Action without knowledge, that wouldn't be sufficient either. If you're just like, I'm going to work real hard, but I, I don't know what God says, that wouldn't work. And knowledge and action without God's grace is also not sufficient. You need all of these things together. Knowledge put into practice and by God's grace. Grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To know him, to know his grace, and to be moved by that. One thing I want to point out that I think is really important as far as making sure you're not ignoring something and putting into that you're definitely putting into practice. Back in verse 15, it's talking about Christ. He hasn't returned yet. Why hasn't he come? Why is he delayed like this? He's being patient. And it reminds us once again, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Again, he's giving this opportunity to be saved. And while you are alive on this earth, this is opportunity that you can come to him. But there's a window that closes. The word here for patience uh, can, can be translated as long-suffering. It's actually a Greek word. It sounds pretty cool. It's uh, macrothumia. You think of a macro, we use that. It's the opposite of micro. Micro is small. Macro is big or means long. Thumia means uh, wrath, anger, fierceness. And maybe to us, you know, we can literally think of it that God has a long wick. He isn't just going off quickly. He is, there's a long time before he expresses you know, his anger, his displeasure against sin. So there's patience, but it's not slack. It doesn't mean that God doesn't care about this. He's never going to care. There's never going to be judgment. We've seen in Scripture there is. But God is giving a lot of time by his grace. We don't deserve all this time, but he gives it to us. So if you are without Christ, if you are still under your sin, if you are under the wrath of God, if you have that guilt that is not lifted from you, 
and you are here or you are watching this video, I pray that you would, in repentant faith, come to Christ. Don't just do the things to distract yourself from your guilt, to numb yourself from the guilt. Come to the one that died on the cross to actually take your guilt away because he took it on the cross for you, that he paid for you. Trust him as your Savior, turning to him in repentant faith. So knowledge of God comes from Scripture. It must be acted upon. And kind of the kind of climax, the crescendo of this passage and really all of Second Peter is that true knowledge of God gives life stability and will keep you from falling. And I want to look especially at uh, the, the ending verses here again. And verse 17 really is a key verse, I think, summarizing the theme of this entire letter, why Paul is writing this. And I pointed out these, uh, the, the picture of being steadfast, being firm. We've seen it time after time in Second Peter. Uh, indications of knowledge, we've seen that again and again. Verse 17, let me just read it one more time. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away of, with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Things that have been said earlier in chapter 1, verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Two verses later in verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Established in truth. Set firm in the knowledge of God. So we've got to avoid these false teachings, all these things. False religious teachers, false secular teachers, things from the world, things from the government, things from your neighbors, things from your own corrupt and sinful heart. And don't follow those. We follow God and what he has said. So many people get caught up in these things and are swept away. And I've noticed, oftentimes, maybe you've noticed this too, we hear about somebody that has denied the faith, whether it's a friend. I mean, I think of people that I've, I've gone to Bible school with that are no longer looking to the Lord. You know, it makes the news from time to time way too often of sometimes big celebrity pastors, you know, that shipwreck their faith and walk away. And it's just, it's interesting that you know, if it was just this, they had an intellectual problem with some doctrine, you could see them maybe changing their view on one doctrine. But what tends to happen is it becomes like the whole slate. They just end up denying everything. And it shows that ultimately it's not an intellectual issue. I think it's a heart issue. It's a life issue. And it's a problem that they're in rebellion against the Lord. They're in rebellion. They're mad at God. They're in disagreement with him. And so they, they jettison everything that they once believed. True believers, those are your genuine Christians, we want to stay focused on the Word of God. And if we are doing this, as it said in the beginning, this will show the, the genuineness of your faith, that you are um, anchored in Him. You don't just have a surface faith, faith that is just, uh, just on ground level, but you are anchored deep, like a, like a tree with roots that go down very deep. We need to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. We've talked about the means that God will use us to do this. 
And as I was thinking about all of this, and maybe it's because it's Memorial Day weekend, and you start to think about summer, you think of different things. Um, but one of the things I want to just remind you of also, when we talk about the knowledge of God, is that we're not just talking about some kind of head knowledge. We're not just talking about a bunch of doctrinal facts. Now, I love doctrine. Doctrine is, is interesting, and we should be in doctrine. I want you to know good, true doctrine. That is really important. Read books on doctrine. This is great. Listen to things. I mean, especially, you know, draw your, our doctrine ultimately comes from the word of God. But it needs to be doctrine, too, that is, is rooted down into our lives and experiential knowledge as well. And I think you have to put both of those together. I was thinking about, like, if you're, if you're camping and you have, a, you have a tent peg, you know, you need to have that tent peg into the ground or else uh, you're going to be blown away. I remember once going camping as kids, and I got to have a friend you know, that came over, and we had a little pup tent beside my family's tent. And uh, me and my friend Matt were out there, and I, I guess we put up the pump tent, and I don't know how well we did you know, anchoring it in, but there was a storm. And we woke up at night, and the whole thing was collapsed on us. You know, and so we're you know, this wet tent with the tent in our face and a collapse of wind blowing around. And I don't think we did a pretty good job putting up our tent. You know, when the storms, you know, come, we need our tent pegs in the ground and in well. So think about it this way. If you have a tent peg, you know, the, you want a tent peg that's going to be, you know, long enough to do the job, and it also has to be anchored into the ground. It needs to be both of those. You need long pegs driven down deep. So I hope in your life that you have, you have long tent pegs, okay? It's not just the shallow uh, truths about God that so many people have, these simplistic, you know, maybe barely true truths. And you think that you're going to weather the storms of life by anchoring those into the ground. No, God has given us so much. He has given us long tent pegs of of deep truth, and I hope that they're straight for you so you can drive them into the ground straight. That's what orthodox means. It means that they're straight. So deep, long truths, but then it also needs to be driven into the ground. Not just in your head, not just on paper, not just in a book, but driven down into your life, into your heart. And I want you to realize there are, some, there are many things that you can learn from, from study, but God also uses other means to drive these ten pegs into your life. Some of those means you're not always going to like. God often uses the hammer of suffering to drive the ten pegs of God's knowledge deep into your life. And many of you have experienced that. And realize that is what God is doing. He's using as, a, as his hammer, as suffering, trials, to drive these ten pegs deep into your life. Other things that God uses to help us have this experiential knowledge. Even your trials against sin sometimes. Uh, your guilt, these things that might uh, just cause you sometimes to just feel, feel devastated. But God also uses that so you can have an experiential knowledge of his forgiveness. Of his grace. Things that God uses, trials, tests, challenge, to to make you know personally his personal love for you. His faithfulness in your life. So you need God's truth. And then God, his providence of the Holy Spirit, will use things to drive that deep into your heart. And deep into your life. And this will keep you able to stand when the storms come. 
So recognize that sometimes the terrible commotion that you hear outside of your tent isn't the Lord trying to knock your tent down. Sometimes that is him pounding the tent pegs deeper into the ground for you. And all of this is for the glory of God in Jesus Christ. As it ends, it says, this is all Jesus, Jesus Christ. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Our growth is by grace. It's in Christ. And it's for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, we give you our praise. We give you our thanks. We thank you that you have given us the means, that you have given us everything that we need. You have, by your divine power, you have granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own ex- glory and excellence. We thank you that you have spoken to us. You've given us the word of God, and through that you've communicated to us the gospel message. Salvation by Jesus Christ, by grace alone, received by faith alone. You have given us truth that we need that is sufficient to cause us to to stand firm. Lord God, let us rest in it. Let it rest on, on you through the word of God. And Lord, we thank you for all of the different means that you also use to drive this truth home. Thank you for brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for being able to gather together to sit under your word. We thank you for the way that even in your providence you use suffering and you use pain, you use challenges to drive that truth in our, those truths deep into our lives. And because of this, you are the one that causes us to stand firm. You are the one that is able to keep us from falling. We look to you, we depend to you, and we give all glory to you through Jesus Christ our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.